Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. Our guest today started her career in the public service uh, government space, I should say slash government space, uh, but has gone on to found uh, something like five side businesses, all while keeping her day job. Uh, I couldn't have predicted that this next phrase would ever leave my lips on this podcast, but she is the sausage queen of Australia. Chrissy Flanagan, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Joe. <laughs> um, so you are very public. Uh, you're out there. If people Google you, they will find you. Um, often speaking, um, I watched this YouTube lecture uh, that you gave to a bunch of Google employees, it looked like. Mm. Um, I've seen you on a few local, uh, they look like morning TV shows to me, um, mm -hmm. bits and spots. Um, you have hosted your own podcast, The Slashies, and we should talk about the slashy uh, world as well here. Mm. Um, but your careers are all sort of really heavy in human interaction, as far as I can tell. And that's not always the case. It's not always comfortable for people with prosopagnosia. Mm. Um, so you're out there, you're very, you know, publicly uh, available. I am wondering if people know this about you. They know lots of other things because you're very open. But how, how, do, how much have you shared with people about prosopagnosia? Will this come as a surprise to anybody in your spheres? Absolutely not. Uh, and although it's probably only about the last year or so that I've started actually um, posting about it on social media, and I just kind of started with um, anecdotes and little experiences that had been kind of frustrating uh, in my life because I, I realised people that, you know, you, you have this whole circle that you don't necessarily see all the time or people I knew from school or university or formal workplaces um, before I had realised that this was go what was going on with me, um, that, you know, I'm not running into them now so I haven't had an, an opportunity to kind of share my wacky face-blind stories. Um, so I wanted to just kind of let people know that, one, like it's an actual thing um, and it has helped some people that um, were like, oh, I, I thought I was just, you know, different or weird, which is a lot of people's experience um, since I've been posting about it. But no, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, it's sort of, my approach to prosopagnosia is a lot like when I was internet dating. Um, it's either good or funny later. So, you know, not every experience is um, positive, but it, it's important to be able to get to a place of laughing about it subsequently or otherwise it's just upsetting. Um, but the difficulty, the like the underlying difficulty with prosopagnosia and especially as an extremely social and outgoing person is that I don't want people thinking that I'm just rude or that I fundamentally don't care about them because I care very much about everyone I meet. I'm as interested in casual acquaintances as I am in um, quite good friends. I'm sort of disloyal like that. So I want to I want to have that connection with people and I want them to know I'm interested. I just can't recognize their facial features. 
So how did you get from government official with uh, no side businesses to government official with multiple, maybe as many as five? Yes. And eventually we'll get to the sausage queen. Yeah. Uh, so I worked in my 20s. This is kind of the, the background. Um, I was a government official and a political staffer um, and worked very, very big jobs and very, very long hours and loved that kind of all-consuming. Uh, I always, as a young person, wanted a job that would take up like my whole life and be more of kind of a, a lifestyle than a job. I just like things that are very full-on. Um, and so I had I had jobs that literally would start at, at 4 a.m. when I'd get a fax with the media clips of what had been said about my minister overnight. Um, and then I would knock off sort of about between seven and nine um, each night and then sometimes get called in the middle of the night when someone had been hit by a train. So a very intense sort of lifestyle. And then um, then I after I burnt out in politics, as a lot of people do, um, moved into the public service, which is kind of the government official side of things, and um, uh, was an executive and managing a team and um, pretty quickly hated that. Um, so I just kind of quit everything and was going to go to Europe and find myself. Um, and I didn't enjoy travel because it wasn't like demanding enough. <laughs> just a poor tourist. Um, so basically came back and went, oh, I don't know what I want to do with my life um, and decided to just consult for a bit. And the thing about consulting is that you have all these patches of time. Um, so sometimes you're really busy, sometimes you're really quiet. And uh, and I realized that I needed um, something else to kind of fill that extra space because it wasn't kind of overwhelming enough. Um, and that's when I, I started making cheese and pickling and just as, as kind of a hobby. Um, but I pretty quickly realized that I needed to build something. Um, I needed that kind of challenge and to, to push myself and that I wasn't satisfied with doing something as a hobby. I wanted to feel like I was taking it somewhere. And at the, at that point, mm. um, it was more of a need to do something else. You weren't driven first by the passion for the thing that you eventually found. So you were on the hunt? I didn't I don't think I, I knew I needed something. I didn't know that it was um, business necessarily. I knew I needed to um, achieve something substantial for myself because I think I'd sort of taken for granted. I was by this stage 32. Um, I was by this stage well established in my career and had just kind of gone like that's done. Like I can, I can just have kind of a good job, and I know that sounds um, very privileged, but I'd, I'd worked so hard in my twenties. I was at a place where I could have a job, um, doing the sort of stuff I was doing for you know the next thirty years, um, and it didn't seem sort of hard enough. So, <laughs> yeah, I was in the market for something, but it really just kind of unfolded that it turned out to be a business. And what was the first business? So the first business was making sausages, um, and as a former vegetarian, that seems extremely <laughs> unlikely. So I was a vegetarian for nine years in my sort of adolescence and very serious 20s, and um, I finally came back to meat um, when I had a very brief flirtation with lifting weights and was just really hungry. Um, so, so yeah, um, 
weightlifting and bacon brought me back to the fold. Um, but I remained very, very picky about the kind of meat I ate. Um, and yeah, I, so I'd gone through this series of making cheese and, and pickles and kombucha and curing hams in the shower and that sort of thing, um, as you do. And uh, just happened to, oh, well, my partner gave me an ultimatum because I had taken over the whole house. I'd cured cheese in his music studio, which had <laughs> gone off in the Australian summer, which wasn't incredibly popular. And he said, look, like, it's fantastic that you're doing this. Do you think it could be beer or sausages? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a reasonable person. Um, but there's a lot of really great beer being made in Sydney already. So, like, I'll make sausages. And then once. <laughs> so it was, he said, <laughs> look, it can't be cheese. It can't be any kombucha or any of these strange yeah. things. But yeah. could it just be beer or sausage? <laughs> and that was your decision making process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, an obliging person. I thought, well, like, yeah, if I am because when I'm doing something, I'm just completely obsessed with it. So I thought, fair enough. He has to hear a lot about it. He has to eat a lot of whatever I'm making. So fair cop that he wants it to be sausages. And so I thought, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair enough. Um, so, and I, I don't have any kind of food background. I'm not from kind of a foodie family at all. Um, but my partner, Jim, who is also my business partner, very much is, and he's a very, very good cook. So we started making sausages and, and I would do the making and, and he did the recipes and he had a very natural gift for um, sausage recipes. And in fact, the first one he came up with was uh, pork, bacon, maple, which was then for many years our, our bestseller uh, in supermarkets. Um, yeah, so it was once I actually made sausages the first time, I went, why do these taste so different from the sausages you get in supermarkets? And the Australian and American sausage traditions are actually quite similar in that um, almost the whole rest of the world, yes, they use not primary cuts but they don't take it as far as we take it you know they don't use like the absolute lips eyeballs and assholes that I, I was just gonna say in. lips and assholes that's what we say here yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I'm I'm told that's the actual truth um <laughs> I, like I have it on really good authority it's like so that what's inside the sausages is something that Oh, I'm sorry if I'm upsetting anyone, but it's just the truth. Um, the the meat companies would otherwise have to pay to dispose of. Oh wow! Um, I know it's confronting when you think about it like that. Um, that and then also like a bunch of filler to kind of bulk things out, um, and like a fistful of chemicals. So that's why sausages are quite a funny color when you think about it. When you think about the color of meat, and then you think about the color of sausages, you're like, well, that's those two don't really go together. Um, and also why they're so ridiculously cheap because, yeah, it would otherwise, it's 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 a waste product. Um, so when, when you make a sausage, as I first did and still do, with um, actual like whole cuts of meat, so like pork shoulder, chicken thighs, um, beef chuck, uh, it, they taste completely different. You can use a really chunky mince, so there's like more texture. And also, sausages are an incredible vehicle for flavor when you use actual foodstuffs in them. It, so it sounds it sounds to me a little bit like this, like once someone gets used to eating your sausage, they won't consider the sausage in the grocery store the same type yeah. of meal, same type of food. Yeah, I kind of ruin sausages for people. That does definitely definitely happen and i do sausage making classes as well um 
boozy sausage making classes during which yeah we, we we smash a bunch of tinnies and make sausages so people are like well what have you done to me like i can't <laughs> i can't go back to normal life now i can never we we have um a hardware chain in australia called um bunnings and uh where there's always a, a sausage sizzle out the front uh it's a great australian tradition and um people have complained that i've ruined the bunning sausage for them because it's just you know a sack of meat that you don't want to think anyway. <laughs> See, I'm really intrigued by this because I love sausage, you know, like if I had to pick a meat, I like mm. sausage. It's spicy. Mm. It's got, you know, lots of flavor. So mm. I can't imagine what 10 X is like. Yeah. You mustn't be eating too bad ones. So like if they have flavor that isn't like a totally generic sausage flavor, then you must be eating a decent sausage. Um, yeah. Cause I think, I think probably the closest thing to the traditional Australian sausage is a hot dog. The, the like the meat that's inside hot dogs, American hot dogs, is basically what the default Australian sausages are. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a bit worse. Um, I had a, a, a student in a sausage class um, who was a flight attendant uh, who lived in Texas and had um, was doing a sausage class on a layover, which I thought was amazing. Um, and she had um, hunted deer and couldn't work out why her sausage wasn't completely delicious. And it was because there's no fat on the deer, so she didn't. Then she knew to add fat. But she said, you know, in Texas, there's an entire um, aisle in the supermarket of of mince meat minces and and sausage equipment, and like there is nothing like that in Australia. It's very hard to come by any of that sort of equipment. So there's certainly much more um, hot spots of fine sausage making traditions in America than there are in Australia. Mm. So it sounds like that's a good choice, though. I mean, if you're going to do something in food, you want to you want to be able to mm. take it to a pri- a premium level, right? It's got to be a <laughs> yeah. higher end cost in order to justify doing the business around well, it. Well, you you might think so, but the thing is, um, people only want to pay like what they would consider a sausage price uh-huh. for any sausage. So um, my margins were actually much much worse um, than. Yeah, for kind of the trash sausages. And and I should say um, that I about two weeks ago actually retired the the retail supermarket brand because it's such a crippling um, business to focus on my, my other businesses, which are doing much better. So um, – because it needs just enormous scale. Any any product needs enormous scale, particularly a premium product. Uh, so whereas people are obsessed with it, this is and this is the trap in business. You keep doing things because people tell you they love it, but you need enough people to love it. And yeah, it's so. But you you keep doing things that aren't necessarily working because you've captured a market. But if it's not a big enough market, then it still doesn't make sense. So with no experience in business, really, uh, you found a hobby and quickly turned it into a business. I can imagine that after you kind of perfected it, figured out how to even package it, mm. that you what showed up at a local grocery store and said, hey, would you carry this for me? I mean, how did you go about that? And, mm. you know, did did face blindness uh, hold you back at all or had you been used to dealing with it enough that you were ready for, mm. you know, these face-to-face interactions that were critical to the future of your business? <laughs> Well, that's sort of the difficult thing because being um, I'm I'm a very outgoing person, but I have a like a an 
absolute horror of approaching people and of asking people for things. So this was like the 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 crux of the worst my worst nightmare would be approaching someone for a sales call that I did not know. Um, so I like I tried for a bit and it was scaring me rigid. So I ended up because I'm still working full time at this point. Um, engaging um uh, someone to do sales and the yeah the i mean that was definitely a big barrier for me because it's never the same and especially when you're small people really expect it to be you doing the thing um but i just i tried to think my way around it and i absolutely sort of hated it and i i can't i can't objectively unpack how much of that had to do with um my my fear of approaching people generally because I some a lot of the time we've already been introduced and I will say stupid things that people with our condition should never say like good to meet you and someone like I I take it all the way it just happened the other day um someone said oh um I'm not sure if you guys met have met before and I said no no we haven't and the like Typically, the the guy said, "Oh yeah, we've met we've met a few times." And I was like, oh, "And did he say that with a sinking face?" Um, fortunately, it was over fo- over the phone. It was another podcast, uh-huh. um, and uh, like I was being introduced on the line. But because uh, I'm also a bit of a goldfish, just with memory, so I don't remember people's names either. So I am just doomed from every direction. But I've come to just really manage my expectations about being able to remember or recognize people because it just is um, apparently not a steel trap in there on a number of levels. So the information doesn't get in in the first place and then what does get through doesn't stay there. So I just go, look, this is how it is. I can only deal with what I can do. Hey, if we're going to do our civic duty here today, I think what Mm. you just touched on there is one of the things that has been so helpful to me. Mm. Uh, It's a little easier when you are open and just start telling people that you have this thing because Mm. you get past any internal stigma that you have. Mm. But lowering the expectation of what you can do, you know, like you're you're not going to be able to recognize faces and you are going to make mistakes. And so Mm. once you sort of let once I let that go, I felt a lot better. Mm. It's it's such a big hurdle to get over because there's so much it's it's so much considered part of manners and manners are very important to me um to recognize people like that's how society expects us to value people um is to recognize them and um that because we we're self-conscious about this but try not to be self-conscious and we understand that we can't control it and there's all this kind of complex like web of thinking around things um when my bigger problem is when i think i've recognized someone i'm so pleased with myself um (laughs) that i want to like have a go at at using their name um but but i'm but I'm also sort of just a bit scared because what if I'm wrong? And sometimes I'm right, but sometimes I'm wrong. But on the occasions that um, I'm sure because I've known someone for, you know, decades and I've seen them regularly and I've seen them online as well. So there's lots of like refreshing of the clues and their current hair and their current look. Um, I'm, I'm almost 
the people that are the, the really conscious that I am face blind um, and introduce themselves to me and say, like, all best practice. Um, so, for instance, we had a choir reunion about a year ago and my choir mistress said, um, hi, Chrissy, it's Kim from choir. Good to see you. And and I was so grateful um, that she did that. But at the same time, I knew who she was and I was sort yeah. of, like, frustrated that I couldn't just go, like, hi, Kim. Um, like, beat her to it. <laughs> But I'm like, oh, she's doing, she's doing the thing, and it's so touching when people actually listen. Will say, what can I do to just make this a bit easier? And the answer is, um, just tell me who you are and how we know each other. And that is, I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, but it's a bit tricky. People, people tell me all the time or say, um can you recognize me? Am I someone that you recognize? And um, they sometimes take it a bit both ways and like they must be strange looking if I can recognize them. Like why are they so funny looking that I'm able to tell them from other people? But some people are just distinctive for, you know, a variety of reasons, very, very distinctive facial expressions, um, of course, voices. Like I can can see someone – a block down the road and tell who they are from from their body. Yes. Um, but yeah, much less so if if I just come upon them in the street um, close up. So it's it's very difficult to explain this to someone who hasn't um, you know experienced it. And how could anyone experience it? How would you describe the severity for you? Um, I think it's pretty severe. Um, because and it it's, it has got so much worse um, since I have done all these business things and um, uh, so because I'm sort of a, a kind of a publicist by trade, um, I've I've managed to get a lot of publicity for my businesses. So there are in the local area a lot of people that uh, I don't I haven't actually met, but who know who I am and. Um, call me by name, I think, because I'm so um, uh, outgoing on social media. So there, there's this extra group of people who seem to know me that I have to work out if I have met before, as well as the people I've met like a few times and I have to work out if I know them. So as as the pool of people that I interact with generally has just grown exponentially, I'm I'm so much more conscious of it than I used to be. Like I went to, um, you know, a smallish school, lived in a smallish town, didn't come in contact with a bunch of different people. And normally people were, excuse me, in their context, uh, which was all very, very helpful. So, so I wasn't looking for an answer when I was young. I was just like, I'm a bit, ba- a bit vague, but not like I have a problem. Um, but when the businesses really sort of started taking off and people knew um, me and remembered interactions we had and I, it was all, it was all news to me um, that it it felt much more severe. So um, it's hard to say how, how severe it would feel if I was not living this sort of lifestyle, but it, it feels, I'm conscious of it every day in, in the, in the way I am now. You know, uh, I think we share a little bit of that story. So I grew up in a very small rural town, mm-hmm. and uh, there were 
60 people in my class in my high school, for example, we had one stoplight. So everyone was always in context. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because it's in the context of the town. Yeah. And Mm. so I'm, I'm sure that I was aware as a kid, you know, like, Oh, wow. That that's weird. I didn't recognize that person. It must've been somewhere under the surface in my mind, but not so pronounced that I would have even said I had a problem. It wasn't until I got to college and then really, especially I went to a small college even later, you know, just getting into public life, you know, I'm in a sa- I'm in a sales role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I, I've been on site at, I gosh, must be 800 or more companies in my career. So just oh. lots and lots of people, you know, oh. and, and that, that has been my world. So as I, as I started down that mm-hmm. path, then I realized very quickly, wow, I have a problem. This is terrible. <laughs> Um, and I, I've, I, in talking with other guests on this show, that seems to be kind of common. You know, if you're colorblind, which I also am, but if you're colorblind, mm. um, how would you know? Yeah. Right? How, do you, how does anyone describe color to anyone else? Yeah. Right. Mm. And um, or if you just see colors differently than the next mm. person. So, um, so yeah, you um, you become aware of it. A lot of people have become aware of it after they uh, start interacting mm. with larger crowds. But. Um, so what was the moment for you? Can can you recall? Um, or was there a period of time when it became, you know, most obvious? I think it's – so it's always been kind of that people I had met at parties and I would meet again and I would, you know, not know who they were and they would know who I was. And so, yeah, there's always kind of been that dull thing in the background. Um I don't know what uh, I can't remember. Actually. Oh, oh no! I read um, an article in the New Yorker um, that was yeah that I went oh oh this Australia feels extremely familiar really and then you know thanks to the internet you can very quickly find out um, that it is real and I immediately told you know all of my relatives largely who were like nah like how could that be a real thing and especially the my relatives who were also just like a little bit vague they're like no we're just a little bit vague like it's not it's not a thing and like no it's like there's a name it's um but it it just it sounds when you say it it sounds like such a cop-out like yes um like an excuse and that's um so frustrating to me because I can't I tried everything like taking meticulous notes as much as possible on anyone I met, where I met them, what the conversation was, what like like they vaguely sort of look like, tried to like take photos of people and say things, but there's just no technique to get around it. And um, also my organisation isn't like quite that meticulous. And when you're running a bar, you can't like take a photo of everyone that comes through the door and like make notes on the chat. So I just had to get to a place of proactively saying, um, oh, hey, you know, it's it's been fantastic chat, really good talking to you, just so you know, next time you're in, if I don't recognize you, it's because I'm face blind. So just really proactively letting people know rather than waiting until that situation comes up where I don't recognize them. Um but the the advice I got from my partner, Jim, is that anytime I feel uh, awkward or uncomfortable or worried that I'm not recognizing someone or that I've offended someone um, that doesn't know what the situation is, is just to say, oh, hey, just so you know, I'm face blind. 
Um, and that means that I can't, you know, recognize people, but I just wanted you to be aware. But I mean, I, I'm always joking about wanting to have a badge, but I don't know what the badge would say. Um, I, I think the closest I've got is, um, I'm face blind. So you could be my mother in a hat. I can't tell for sure, but it's not really <laughs> catchy. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I've been making that joke for years and then my um, stepbrother came into the bar. I knew he was coming, um, but he was wearing a hat. So I didn't recognize him and I offered him a table. And I was like, wow, that's really, really pronounced. But he was wearing a hat, so I was missing (laughs) all the cues. I just had no clue who he was and he's someone I've known for 25 years. Um, But this is the reality of our lives. Well, and when you're walking around in, in public in, in your city, um, I mean, how likely is it that you might run into someone who knows you just randomly? Um, around kind of my um, suburb, village area, um, like any time I would leave the house, it's sort of like a 50-50 yeah. chance, I would say. Um, and that's that's kind of someone that I would stop and have an interaction with. But um, uh, people like when I'm, I'm in the supermarket line um, waiting to check out will fairly commonly start talking to me and say, oh, you know, um, we were in the other week at the bar and it's good to see you and blah, blah, blah. And it's completely news to me that we've ever met before. I will look at them and be very um, cheerful and friendly because that is my default mode because you don't know who you're talking to. Um, I always start from a place of being like very up, uh, which either means that I come across as a really friendly person or like crazy, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> that's, like, that's, the must... exact, that, that's the exact thing that I de- describe. That's how I describe mm. myself. I'll say that, you know, when I'm in the, my local grocery store, mm. um, my default mode is uh, open, warm, friendly, Yes. Uh, could be taken as, um, you know, obviously th- this is, he knows he that we're friends, right? That's the mm, expression mm. that I'll beam to everyone. But yes. you have to be careful because you're right. If it's a, mm. too intense, if you're eyeballing them too, too intensely, then you're serial killer, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it's uh, it can give people a slightly strange vibe because normal, in inverted commas, people um, – aren't really like this but we start with this kind of yeah like a default position of like hey. it, it could it could be <laughs> <laughs> because like maybe we're friends and yep. um i at the risk of um I, I don't want to offend you and like if i don't know you would it be offensive if i'm just friendly so um that's kind of the place so everyone who comes through the door at the bar i'm like hi um and i'm thrilled to see everyone possibly because i know them possibly because i'm gonna know them soon um but yeah i I mean in that way that's possibly one of the best um results of having this condition is that it leaves you very disposed to talking to anyone um and getting to know anyone because you've already opened um at a position of warmth and right. and I think there's not the same pressure on other people. Like it's much easier to be reserved and then kind of keep yourself for the people that you know, you know, um, but that's not really an option for us. That, um, you know, I, I do see that as um, there's a, there's a coin that will flip here, but I do see that as uh, a positive uh, 
one of the few positives of this condition for my career, you know? Mm. So in sales, my default mm. position with everyone is, um, you know, or, or not just sales, just in the grocery store is this open face, this, uh, openness. And I want mm. you to talk. I want you to tell me something so that I can get clues. <laughs> I'm not dominating the conversation. <laughs> And that's what you really oh should do God. in sales too. You know, if you go into yeah. a sales meeting, you want the other people to talk, you know, yes. more. So, so I think that's that been so uh, natural. Yeah. And I assume that everyone with face blindness mm. would have the same approach to the world. Um, mm. One of the early interviews I had though was with, uh, I think it might've been the first woman who came on the show with it. Mm. And uh, she was aghast at that. She said, uh, yeah, I, I really can't do that as a woman, certainly not in, you know, places that I don't know well, where there are strangers, mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't want to just walk up. To, it could be dangerous to walk up to some dude with this look on your face like, hi, I'm really happy to see you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think I've, I've always um, meticulously sort of tried to maintain like not being a sort of typically attractive woman if that makes any sense i know that's a very strange thing to say but it is sort of um that's pretty strange like, <laughs> <laughs> well i'm like vain about not being vain you know? uh -huh. it, it's a very strange thing to say but it's um it is just like a bit um safer when you do have this sort of when you're not really sure who people are i like i lead very much with sort of um uh humor and not like a femininity um, because that, yeah, that seems, um, yeah, like a precaution um, when when you're like a very outgoing people because person because it's very easy to be misunderstood, um, yeah, when, when you're like us. So that's like an extra. If everyone's just my mate, though, then it's fine and I'm kind of not at risk of giving anyone the wrong impression, yeah. I think it could also just be a part of your natural personality coming through because you're um, like, if you're like this in, in public with new people that you meet, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty forceful, right? So <laughs> maybe intimidating. So they don't see you as a victim. Oh, oh well, I don't know. I, I'm very um, obliging and easily led. This is like advertising to be. <laughs> but um. Yeah, look, it's 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 a funny it's a funny life, and uh, there aren't necessarily people around that you can talk to that understand. So it's tricky. The you know the card or the badge, uh, you know, I see this idea floating around. I, I agree with you. It would be hard to figure out exactly what to put on it. <laughs> um, also. I I have a pendulum that happens. Mm. Some of my other guests have mentioned the same thing. Okay, you go through these phases where, okay, I'm going to tell everyone I meet. Mm. But then you look at how many hours you have in the day. And as, as a serial <laughs> entrepreneur with five jobs, potentially, yeah, yeah. I imagine you have to do a cost-benefit analysis of spending 15 minutes to have this discussion that you've had, mm. you know, 500 times before. I think I, I just sort of like slip it in there. And unless people happen to be really interested, um, then I just kind of like put it on the record with them um, and, yeah, like generally people don't sort of ask questions. They just kind of go like, oh, okay, 
Um, and I don't know if they kind of look it up later or if they go, whatever, like what, who's who's ever heard of that or that's not a real thing. Um, but, yeah, generally it's just kind of like a quick little, hey, just FYI, like look forward to seeing you next time, just so you know I'm face blind. So, you know, um, like just remind me of this conversation. Uh, but, yeah, it's funny. Um and I sort of wonder if people take that as a, I'm not going to remember you, so whatever. And if if people do sort of not seek out interactions with me because of that, um, I can't tell because I don't know if they come back again or not because I can't recognise them. Um, but it, it's it's a little bit of a worry. But I I I can only this is the only thing that has sort of worked for me of being really upfront about everything because I'm such an upfront. Um, person it's the only thing that feels in inverted commas like my personal brand um, that I can do I being anxious and awkward about it is too debilitating for me so um, I'd rather just kind of put it out there and if people don't understand me that's just what's going to happen do you uh do you recognize your partner is are there any issues whatsoever in recognizing your partner um I can't think of a time I haven't recognized him. Um, he is very distinctive looking though, which is great. Um, he's very, very tall and he has very, very pronounced facial features um, and like a huge booming voice, very larger than life and charismatic. So um, that's really great. I, I have noticed that I have sort of a preference for, for people who are very distinctive looking because I guess it's very comfortable. Uh, but, I, I, yeah, I mean, I have not recognised my mother um, when she was not wearing a hat. Um, and even, yeah, again, when I knew I was going to see her because, yeah, we were own in public. My own mother, yeah, who um, – is is also fairly distinctive looking. Of course, she's she's little, but yeah, like hats are hats are my kryptonite. Um, <laughs> you just lose a lot of information. I think I rely very very heavily on hair. Um, movies are a nightmare because if there are like two dudes with brown kind of comb overs, I'm I'm done. Like that is that is it for me, and I will just spend the whole movie complaining about them casting people who look so ridiculously similar um <laughs> have I, you seen uh, the haunting of hill house it was on yes. netflix in the states yeah i had such a hard time with that one that was one of the most memorable bad oh. face blind movies for me recently because there were um i i, I actually don't know there seemed to me there were six uh women cast mm. they were all young slender and had and had black hair and they were all cast as like there were sisters and girlfriends. And then they would also go back in time and have younger oh. versions of them. And yeah. I had no idea, but I loved the show, mm. but I had to keep mm. poking my wife saying, okay, which one's yes. that? Yes. And like, is that the guy from, oh, oh, did he kill the, oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. I sometimes, cause we've been watching, um, Oh, um, the dark and, uh, they've got like multiple time, three multiple time periods. Right. And that, I quite like, um, although there are too many characters and that's throwing me out, and lots of characters times three, which is very bad. But they've, so that all the other people know who anyone is, they've got very similar, the character through three different time periods has like the same hair and the same kind of dress style. And I'm like, amazing. Like that's the best clue I've ever had. 
Um, and so sometimes I can point out to Jim that this character must be the younger version of that other character because he has the hair. And like I'm so pleased with myself when I can when I can tell who a character is and someone else can't. It's like such a petty thing to be proud of, but like that's what passes as achievement. <laughs> Now, uh, you said you're phasing out the retail side of mm. uh, Chrissy's Cuts, mm. right? That was the brand yes. in Australia. Yes. Um, so that's not going to be available in stores anymore, but you are still the sausage queen in what respect? <laughs> you're like, so this sausage queen thing, that's clearly <laughs> bullshit now. Well, uh, so um, I still have the the bar restaurant, which is the sausage factory. So okay. um I'm making sausages just for use in the sausage factory, so they're on the menu there. Um, and uh, so I also make beer, and it is called Sausage Queen Brewing. Uh, so the beer is going really, really well, um, and this was stunning to me because I was making a completely unique product um, that you couldn't get anywhere else, and that was a grind. And Sydney is rammed full of amazing breweries, absolutely like it is it is the new golf of our generation like it is a total lifestyle people are obsessed with um with beer in the inner west which is sort of my district of sydney and um, oh, by the way i have to stop you because you just said beer the way i would ex expect it to be pronounced but there's a over-the-top uh, foster's commercial here in the states that says uh beer <laughs> <laughs> I, what is I it? Foster, that's, that's Australian for beer. Fosters. That's what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, no one. No one. By the way, that sounded more Boston, but all my I live next to Boston, and they're like, "No, it doesn't. <laughs> You're terrible." <laughs> I, I'm always being. I don't have a typical Australian accent. Um, I've always been told I sound a bit kind of more American or Canadian. I'm sure I don't to Americans, but in Australia, I don't sound Australian. Um, and I have no idea where that was. I didn't sort of travel as a young person. I did like watch a lot of television. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know how much was influenced, but yeah, I say, I say beer. I don't, <laughs> but it's not like the Simpsons episode where they say beer. So right. anyway. <laughs> Um, so yes. I, I did see you on um, one of these. I think it was a morning news spot. That's mm. that, that was my impression of it. There were two ladies mm. with you. I think mm. you may have been drinking at the same time. Um, <laughs> and you had like a uh, a grinder, right? Yes. Yes. And you were introducing them to this. Uh, what it looked mm. like to me was essentially a condom attached to the outspout. <laughs> um, and then when you inflated the condom with the meat, it was, uh, well, I mean, there was a natural connotation that I think all three women, <laughs> a reaction that all three women had to it. Um, I just think that was, you know, fun <laughs> to watch. But um, what is, this is just a mm. sausage question, nothing to sure. do with face blindness, oh, but yeah. um, <laughs> what is that material? Is it like mm. intestine or yes. can it be something else? Um, artificial? There are artificial versions, but good sausages are made with intestine. Um, I will give you this piece of advice, which is to absolutely never Google how sausage casings are made uh, because the, the YouTube of that is extremely confronting. Uh, but, yeah, it's um, it's intestine. So most commonly used in what I use is um, a hog intestine. So basically they're made by flushing out all the stuff from the intestines and then they're graded by size, um, packed in salt, and then we before we're making sausages, 
soak them, flush them out with water and then, yeah, pump sausage meat into that. Um, but they they cook much more beautifully than that um, artificial casings and they, they're all sort of naturally curved and they've got those beautiful rounded ends and um, the artificial casings are like a bit chewy they don't like cook nicely and they're kind of ugly looking but I know it's a bit weird and in sausage class the uh the intestine bit is definitely the most confronting part of the class um but you know it's just it's just how the sausage is made you've got to get through it to get to the sausage at the end like anything it's a bit gross in the middle and then you're done right well I mean how much more gross is it than enjoying a steak, which you know was just recently hacked out of the leg of a an animal, right? Yeah, um, it, yeah. If you're going to eat meat, you can eat any kind of meat, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, look, I think a lot of people just don't think about things. And when they're in the situation of actually making, like a, cutting up a steak or um, making a sausage, it's it's a whole world of confronting, um, uh, like as, as a form of vegetarian um, and still an animal lover. And I only use um, uh, free range, certified free range meat, and that's very important to me. But I am excited for the time that we can get at a commercial scale lab grown meat that is where nothing has died. And I know that technology is, you know, still in its infancy, um, but it is coming. And when that is around, I will never eat. Um, or make a sausage from a former animal again. Um, and I just am praying for the day that that is done. You, do you mean like what we're calling beyond meat, like these uh, grain-based fake no, meats? No, 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 because that's trash. I, in my personal, okay. in my personal thing. Um, so, but, well, because that's also it's so heavily processed um, that, I mean, health-wise, you'd largely be better off with meat. Um, no, so this is um, – uh, so w- with cells, it's meat grown from cells in a sterile laboratory environment, um, and it's a process not actually totally dissimilar from beer making, although obviously you know high, more highly technological. Um, but yeah, the cells grow from kind of your library of cells. If you can, and 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 the animal doesn't have to be killed to harvest the cells. And once you have the cells, you don't need to get them again. You can kind of store them and keep growing meat from that same um, library of cells. So I'm working with a company in Australia that is the first um, cultured meat startup in Australia. And um, they are actually, rather than focusing on making, you know, beef, pork, lamb, um, chicken that the whole world already eats, they're going, what are the odds that the most delicious meats are the animals that have been able to be domesticated? Um, you know, what does lion taste like? Um, and apparently um, in the early colonisation of Australia, there was a tortoise that was hunted almost to extinction as now a protected species. But if you could harvest cells from that apparently extremely delicious tortoise and it didn't hurt the tortoise, you know, what would that be like? What what does that delicious tortoise taste like? Um, and then the, the real stretch of this idea um, and the most controversial part, and it takes a bit of thinking about, is um, if you can eat any meat just by getting its cells, stay with me, just by getting its cells and it doesn't hurt the thing you get the meat from, what about a Kanye burger? Because it's the ultimate in personal branding. You can, you can have 
have the face blown podcast, you know, sausage. <laughs> it's, look, it's are, a crazy Are you saying idea. human meat? Well, I'm just saying it's possible and nothing <laughs> would be harmed. I'm just saying. And I'm wow. not, of course, I know. it's, But it's a lot to think about. Um, but I think the future of food is going to be really, really different. Um, but it's a question of once all of this is possible and it's at scale, like putting aside the humans for a point. So that's right. really a thought exercise. But um, say you can you you enjoy pork and you can get um, lab-grown pork or kind of like former animal pork. Um, why would you continue to choose the one that like came from an animal? It, do you prefer that something had to die for dinner? Um, and I know this is very strange coming from someone like a meat producer, but um, I'm doing the closest thing I can to that so far. And as soon as I can switch, I can switch because I just don't see the point. If it's the same product, I would rather just nothing be hurt. That's really interesting. Um, we, you know, this is a totally different podcast, but... Um... <laughs> But it, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, you know, my mind thinks of this as uh, kind of an energy balance or an overall system equation, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will mm -hmm. theorize that you know our meat eating habits are ultimately what is um, causing global warming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're over farming, we're mm -hmm. overusing certain areas, we're cutting down trees to make room for all of this, and so you could say as the population grows, it's not even sustainable. Uh, do you sense or do you have any idea of how much more efficient it might be to grow meat than mm. go through the cycle of feeding an animal from birth through full mm. adult size, you know, to the point where it can be slaughtered? Mm. I don't know what the, the numbers are, but it's all definitely on the Internet. But it's it's significant because um, there. Yeah, there's no you don't have the land to grow the meat. It's incredibly um land efficient um but then also yeah you don't have the the grain and you don't have the land that the grain is grown on um yeah all the grazing land so it's definitely much more space intensive um and yeah there's not kind of the the there aren't animals to be kind of farting to put it crudely and that that is also polluting the atmosphere so um that all adds up to be to be hugely different. The all the water used to grow everything and and to water the animals. So, and there's also not um, the wasted parts of the animals uh, because they don't have bones. Um, you're just growing at the moment. Um, they're just growing. It's sort of like mince is the product um, that is grown from cells, um, and other startups are working on growing fat from cells they're kind of separate projects at the moment so um it, in many ways it's much more efficient and i think once that can get to scale it will be able to feed for the same sort of money and far less pollution a lot more people and when you look at how quickly the world is uh gentrifying and standards of living are rising and who who are we in you know the first world to say that everyone else shouldn't be entitled to the same standard of living we enjoy? I completely understand why more people want to be eating meat and can now afford meat, and so the demand is growing. Um, but yeah, the world can't keep up with the growing demand. Mm. So uh, you still have your day job, we said, yes. right? You're still um, in. Uh, 
gov- a government role, yes. right? Yes. Um, you still have uh, the restaurant uh, yes. where you are now, uh, you know, serving meals there, but also serving your own uh, beer, which is a separate business. Yep. People can buy that beer at the liquor store. Yes. So it's commercialized. Yep. Um, what other ventures are you in? um i started so i started about a year ago um a not-for-profit to promote local businesses uh because there are a lot of artisan producers in the area and then um when covid hit which was sort of mid-march uh and the restaurants here were shut down uh i set up uh well i i changed that not-for-profit to be a distributor of, of locally made products um, because a lot of my local business colleagues were totally wholesale businesses supplying restaurants. So all of a sudden their whole business went away overnight and they had no way of getting their product out. So um, I set up a, a website with e-commerce facilities um, in the space of about three days and recruited all these local businesses and um, took all the photos and, and launched the website. Um, and it was set up so that um, 100% of the takings go to the businesses. So um, we just cover costs on delivery fee, but everything, all my time is donated um, because I have the job guilt, because I have the, the good government job. Um, so I wanted to really do something to keep local businesses alive. So in the first five days, we sold $5,000 of product through that and then 20,000 in the first two months and it's still kind of turning over now so that's the probably the third biggest thing that I'm that I'm working on currently so you are a serial entrepreneur and um, mm-hmm. I think if we were to really dive into that topic it would take another hour <laughs> um, so I'm gonna limit our discussion a little bit what I will do though is I'm gonna post that YouTube video that I watched. Oh, thank you. Uh, because I thought it was really insightful. You know, I have oh. this uh, entrepreneur's itch that keeps mm. bothering me over the decades, and sometimes I indulge it and, mm. you know, uh, overextend myself. Uh, mm. <laughs> so I know you know what that's like as well. Um, mm. But I, I will put that up, and I, I encourage my listeners to go watch that. Um, I think you had some really insightful ideas. If you're going to go down this path, mm. you know, here, here's how you think about work-life balance, for example. Well, there isn't yeah. such a thing, right? Well, that because it's because it's a myth because it's all just your time. But yes, more more on that. But like my 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 ten second pitch for businesses is there's nothing, there's no challenge equal to it. Um, and if you need to test yourself for any reason, there's just it's unbeatable. One thing that I picked up in that that I'll also uh, put out there for anyone that is, you know, has that itch, you feel it, you know, keep your day job. That's one of your big messages. 100%. It it just affords you the space to make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. Of course, you don't plan to, but you you don't know what you're doing or it would already be your career. So, yeah, it's just a bit of a safety net. The the, uh, few times that I've, uh, you know, had a little side gig going or a side hustle going, um, you know, none of them went big. But um, I did learn an awful lot. And Mm. another thing I picked up on in your uh, discussion at Google was uh, the idea that it could actually make you better at your day job. Absolutely. I found that definitely to be true. Yeah, it just kind of, if you're the sort of intense purpose person who needs a 
lot of stuff happening who would be attracted to the idea of starting a business, then you're possibly already a little over emotionally involved in your job because that's just what full-on people are kind of like. So, yeah, by taking the space and being stepping out of your job and focusing on your business, it makes you, yeah, more able to, I don't know, just be like level-headed and strategic in, in your job. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'm a better employee for the purpose through being an employer as well. Yeah. Mm. Chrissy, fascinating. Um, I may have to have you back again. Um, really enjoy the conversation. Of all the things that uh, you have your name on and ways that you help people, uh, where should people go to find you? What, what are the the properties you'd like them to visit? Oh, um, probably Sausage Queen Brewing on Instagram. Um, and then from there, find me on all the place. Can I just tell you, Jeff, I like my number one face blind anecdote? Can I crash Please. In? Okay. Yes. So this is, I've, I've never heard anything like this. Um, so because in the local area, a lot of people just sort of know who I am. And if people seem like they know me, I just assume they must. Um, so I was at a restaurant with friends. And when I came in, a woman gave me a really big smile. Um, and as I gave, like smiled back and, uh, and then a little bit later, she came over and, and sort of was having a bit of chat. So I like had a bit of a chat. Um, and then a little bit later, she came back um, and kissed me on the cheek. And I thought, oh, I, I really must know her quite well. Uh, and then she went back to her table. And then a little bit later, she came back over and she licked me on the cheek, at which point I thought, I'm very confident. I don't know anyone on a cheek licking basis. Um, and I think I just, I did not know what to do. And I uh, looked quite aghast and my friends were sort of quite alarmed and didn't really know what was happening. Um, and then not long after that, um, that other table left and the staff came over and, and said, um, uh, are, you, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, sure. Yep. Um, and they said, uh, I think her name was Audrey. Um, uh, she she comes in often with her family. Um, you seemed to know her. Um, and I was like, I I I'm face blind, so I really I don't know. Um, I'm beginning to suspect maybe I don't know her. And uh, they said, yeah, she's um she's actually got dementia. Um, but she's it's manifesting in her being very outgoing and, and very friendly. Um, and normally we we try to keep her family uh, keep an eye on it um, because you know she she doesn't want to upset anyone, but she's not she doesn't know what's happening. Um, but you seem to know her. So um, the really we were the blind leading the blind because in this situation where neither of us knew what was happening, we got um, our two conditions interacted to cause um, great chaos and hilarity for the whole restaurant really. So that is um, definitely the most extreme situation I've been in through face blindness. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that sets you up for a possible failure because the next time a strange woman licks your face, you'll say, hi, Audrey. And you might be wrong. That is so true. Like, great to see you. How have you been? It's lovely to feel your spittle on my skin again. No, and she was, she was lovely. But I thought how funny life is that we get into these situations and uh, look, it wouldn't have happened without it. And uh, I don't regret it. <laughs> Well, thanks again for this interview. I appreciate your time. I know it's uh, probably scarce. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's a pleasure. 
For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.